0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at SevenRiversVillages.org. All right, let me invite you to turn your Bibles if you have one to Mark 14. If you do not, uh, then uh, we do have it on the screen behind us, and you'll be able to follow along with the reading. Uh, Let's see, there we go. All right. Now, we've been in a series on Mark for quite some time. Uh, We started it at the beginning of the year, took a little break when it came to uh, the summer months, and we looked at the Psalms. And uh, we do something in here called expository preaching and exegetical preaching. And what that means is what we want to do every, uh, is study through a book of the Bible over a period of time. And uh, sometimes you can look at the Bible topically and say, what are our questions we want to bring to the passage? But in the main, what we want to do is say, we want to spend some time in a book and understand what this book means for us and how it communicates. So we've been in Mark, and this book is showing us the ministry of Jesus from the time he started till the time of his crucifixion. That's its main focus. So in Mark, you don't really get uh, a birth narrative. In Mark, it doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection of Jesus other than just really the the announcement of it. You don't get the ascension and other things you may get in some of the other books of the Bible. But one of the things that he's wanting us to see is the first part of the book is the identity of Jesus. So the question keeps coming up, who is Jesus? Who is this? Who is this? We think he might be the Christ. And then finally, in chapter 8, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one of God. You're the king that was promised in the Old Testament who's going to make everything in the world right. And that was our longing. But then once that question is addressed in the book of Mark, there's another question that comes up that Jesus begins to raise. And that is, what's the Christ here to do? What did he show up to do? And so that question has to do with his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that's what we're looking at this morning as we look at Mark 14. This answering this question to some degree over and over again. This is the last week of Jesus' life, and uh, so we're reading about his anointing before his uh, death in Bethany. So, if you're willing and able, in honor of God and His Word, let me invite you to stand as we we read in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse one. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the reading of God's word. He's given it to us because he loves us. Every word of it is true, and every word of it is applicable for our lives today. So let's ask him to bless us and open our hearts to receive this us pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. This passage is about you. Life is about you. In eternity, we'll come to know you better, more fully. But today with everything that's going on in our lives and our hearts. We need to hear what this passage tells us about you. And so we pray that you would enable us to push aside the things that are going on in our lives. We pray that you would enable us to, to uh, push aside some of the questions that may arise, the details of the passage, and simply to see you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enable us to see Jesus, focus our attention and our minds and hearts. And Lord, I pray for myself in the midst of this. Uh, you know the swirl inside of me of emotions and thoughts, and I pray that you would help me inwardly to be focused on Jesus the King, that I may hold forth words of life uh, for your people. Bless us and be with us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I, I do a great deal of reading and preparation for sermons every week, and uh, sometimes I'll listen to other sermons online to see how people addressed uh, a passage. And it's interesting listening to a variety of sermons this week on this, because many of them kind of had this, the same application in, in it, like, what, are you, what am I supposed to do with this? And it went a little bit like this, is don't be like Judas and betray Jesus, and instead be like Mary who anointed him. So that was kind of a generalized message that was coming through, and, and so I started really reflecting on the passage, and, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that's not really what this passage is about. It's not really about Judas, it's not really about Mary, it really is about Jesus. It's not about how committed some people are to Jesus and how uncommitted some other people are, it's, it's about how committed Jesus is to his people. And so as we begin to look at this, what we see is that everything in this passage is about Jesus' determination to go to the cross and die for the sake of his people. So this passage is not telling us something we have to do. It's telling us something that Jesus has done. In other words, it's not an assignment. It's an announcement to us to help us to understand what Jesus is, has done for us and his determination to do it. So the gospel, as we look at it, is, is really first and foremost an announcement. It's news. It's not advice. It's not a recommendation. It's a declaration and explanation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. So let me see if I can help you think about this a certain way. We had to—Rebecca and I have some friends uh, live in another state— And when uh, this woman was in uh, college, she got a scholarship, but her parents took out an exorbitant amount of uh, financial aid scholarships and things you had to pay back, loans, uh, in her name, and she didn't know about it. And so they racked up a huge debt with all the money they took out, and they spent it all on themselves, and she had no idea until she graduated. And all, the start, all of a sudden, all of these money they had taken out, uh, all of it was coming due. And she was starting to get these bank statements saying, this is how much you owe, this is how much you owe, this is how much you owe from these creditors. And she had no idea, and it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and so that just wrecked her credit. She couldn't get a house. She couldn't get a loan. She couldn't do the things that they needed to do, she and her husband, because it just completely wrecked her credit score. And so she had a, a, a friend who was very wealthy, and this man and his wife decided that they just wanted to pay her debt. So they paid it all, and not a smidgen came out of her pocket. The only thing that she had to do was to receive that gift. Now, when she received that gift, uh, she didn't have to pay any of it back, but it completely transformed her life because it opened doors to her that had never been opened to her because of the debt that she owed. Now, if you're listening, you can hear the gospel coming through, at least a picture of the gospel in the midst of that, is Jesus has come to pay our debt and in doing so, he has opened the door of heaven to us, open, given us access to things we would never have had access to, gifts we would never have been given. He has come to uh, repair the relationship. And what we're seeing in this passage is, is that this is, the gospel is news about what Jesus has done. And we receive it. And when we receive it, it begins to change everything. So we're going to, you have points in your outline? we'll probably talk about those so that's where we're going this morning uh jesus has his mind here fixed on the cross and your salvation and the payment of your debt your freedom so first point what is what is my fourth what do i call it oh understanding jesus that's what it is okay i didn't know if i called it the same thing in my notes as it was on the screen i just had to make sure okay as we come in here um this passage it's talking about jesus death and if you've been reading through the book of mark you realize this is not a new idea. Jesus has already predicted his own death three times. So listen to the, in, in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. Listen to what he says in Mark 10 and how detailed he is about what's going on and how this passage we're reading this morning plays into it. So Mark chapter 10, verse 33 to 34. Jesus says to his apostles, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. They were just outside of Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that will be the Romans, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So as we look at the death of Jesus, we're beginning to realize Jesus doesn't have a problem, he has a plan. And the death of Jesus was not a tragedy, it was a triumph. It was something he was intending to take place for our sakes this is a plan he has to rescue and to save us. So how this passage fits into this is it's, it's showing us uh, that this is what's going to happen. It's inescapable because Jesus is going to accomplish this. He's determined to. So the first part of this is really about uh, the Jewish leaders as we step into it. So in the, Jewish, the Jewish leaders are plotting surreptitiously. They're stealthily trying to find a way that they can uh, arrest Jesus And then kill Jesus without the crowds getting involved in this. So the passage begins with a plan. And they knew that direct attack would never work on Jesus because he always exposes them. And it never goes well for them. And the crowds love Jesus. And if they were to seize Jesus in public, the crowds would begin to riot. And they did not want that to happen. So they were looking for a way uh, to find Jesus in secret. And so this is what's called a mark and sandwich. It begins with what's going on with the, the priests and the scribes. And then it cuts to a different scene. And then it comes back to the priests and the scribes again. So it's a mark and sandwich. And then what takes place in the middle is explaining how we got from point A to point B. And the way they got to point uh, B was uh, because of uh, Judas, which we'll come to in just, just a moment. So it's showing that the way that we get from the, the Jews hating Jesus, the leaders hating Jesus, to the point where they can actually arrest him is because of what takes place with Judas. Now, in the middle of this, in the middle of the sandwich, is uh, Mary. But it's also talking about, at the beginning, something that's very important because this is the context for everything that's taking place. This is the week of Passover, Passover, and of unleavened bread. Now, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were annual feasts commemorating God's rescue of the Jews from Egypt. In the Old Testament Passover, they would sacrifice a lamb, and they would take the blood of the lamb and paint the doorposts. And the angel of God went through the whole city, uh, went through all of Egypt, and anyone who was not under, under the sign of the doorpost and the blood saying, someone here has already died on behalf of all of these people then God would, uh, the destroying angel would come in and take the life of the firstborn in every single house. Now, the reason this is significant, it was practiced every year among the Israelites. But as Jesus is here, the Bible says that he's actually our Passover lamb. And when he goes to the cross that week, it's as if our, the door frames of our houses have been painted with his blood. And the Bible says that he, the firstborn, has died for us. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7. He says that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been slain. So we're standing where Christ is at the cross, and that's the safe place from God's judgment. So we're forgiven, we're free. And there's a third thing in this passage. It's really talking about uh, the, the death and the burial of uh, Jesus. And it's showing in verse fourteen eight that uh, Mary is uh, anointing Jesus' body for burial. It says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Anointing guests was a common act of hospitality and honor. They would commonly do this, so this wasn't the only time Mary had probably done this. But at this point, it's theologically charged in a way that it never was before because you don't prepare a person for death who has their whole life in front of them. And this is not just welcoming a guest into the home. This is something more, and commentators pick up on this. Because if Jesus is the Christ, what that word Christ means is the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, when you anointed something, you marked it with oil, you put oil upon it, and you consecrated it or set it apart as holy to God. And this is true not just of things, but it's also true, Exodus 29, 7, of the high priest. And so when Aaron, the first high priest, is anointed, it says this, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So Jesus, the anointed one, is being anointed by Mary because he's, she's preparing him for death as a sacrifice. But he's not any kind of any other sacrifice. He's the high priest himself who's giving himself on behalf of his people. Hebrews 10 says, When this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin. He sat down because by that one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who were being made holy. So Jesus' coming crucifixion was not a tragedy. It was a triumph. So this passage is really about Jesus. And it's about what he had come to do. And everything in the passage is saying, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And everything, even the people who are trying to oppose Jesus, are going to carry out God's will and redeem God's people. So as we step into this passage a little bit further what we see is that uh, there are three people who are mentioned here and three very different responses to jesus the first is the jewish leaders and they consider jesus to be a threat so the scribes and the chief priests saw jesus as a threat because they had something to lose if jesus comes into some sort of power so they've got to eliminate him and so one he had the favor of the people, which meant that if, if he steps into power, they're going to lose power and they don't want to lose power. And then the second reason is potentially this. If the people follow Jesus and he sets, he's set up as the Messiah, then the Romans are going to come in and attack Jerusalem and everybody's going to lose their place. Not just the scribes, but everybody. So they saw themselves as uh, keeping the status quo so they can keep their cherished lives and keep Jerusalem intact. When the Jewish leaders oppose Jesus because if what he says is true, then what they want out of life, they can't have. They believe the world, what they believe about the world and themselves cannot be true. If Jesus is who the Bible says that he is, then it changes what they want to be true and how they want to live. So Jesus' words... And his cherished beliefs were in conflict with their beliefs and cherished truths. And they're in conflict with one another. And I was thinking about that this week. And uh, I realized that uh, this is very common in the United States for people to say. To say, I have my personal truth and you have your personal truth. Have you heard that? I've heard that quite a bit. And I realized, well... For the Christian, I don't believe I have a personal truth. I believe I have a person who is the truth. And so I trust him. And so when people around me are saying, we all have our personal truth, it's in conflict with what I believe Jesus to be saying. Now, when people hear that, I say, no, there's only this one truth, and the truth is a person. People in our culture will say, well, that's arrogant to say that you have the corner market on the truth, right? So Michael Kruger has this great, The quote about that it's actually in your bulletin I wanted you to have it but it's also going to be on the screen behind me and he says is it he asked the question is it arrogant simply to believe what Jesus has said about himself is it arrogant simply to believe what Jesus has said about himself not at all it is his claim not ours we are merely passing it along the real objection then is about Jesus Everything comes down to what people think about him, not what they think about us. Is he arrogant to claim that he's the only way to God? Well, that depends on the identity of Jesus. He didn't claim to be a mere human or simply a prophet, but rather the divine son of God. And as such, he would certainly have the authority to tell us about how one goes to heaven. So I've imagined myself kind of standing before somebody who might say that and to say, look, you're claiming that truth is personal. And Jesus says that he's the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And it's not arrogant for me to say I believe one of you over the other, right? Because you're both making a claim. It's just that I find Jesus and who he is to be more loving and trustworthy and powerful and redemptive than what you're saying. So I trust him. I believe. And that's not arrogance, that's what we call faith. So, second person that's here is Mary. And if the If the Pharisee, if the leaders of Israel were saying, enough of Jesus, what Mary's saying is, Jesus even if. Jesus no matter what. And we see that because she takes a a, a little flask of nard, and people said, and they were right here, uh, that it was a whole year's worth of wages. So whatever you would make in a year, that's how much that was worth back then. And so she basically has a family heirloom, and she takes it, and she breaks it, and that's how you, there wasn't a cork, you just had to break it, and it all flowed over Jesus, and she prepared his body for a burial. Now, the woman in the passage is unnamed, but you see in John's gospel that this is Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, and as we read through the passage, uh, she's the one who sat at Jesus' feet and learned along with the other disciples. She's the one, she's one of the women who was there at Jesus' resurrection. And so she's being trained and taught by Jesus just like all of his other disciples. And a lot of times when people look at this passage, they'll say that Mary had no idea what she was doing. And as I was reading this and thinking about the things she's heard Jesus say, I was thinking, "I, I don't know about that. I think she might have had an inkling and some sort of spiritual insight about what was taking place here because Jesus has been talking about his death quite a bit, and it could be that Mary, out of all the other people who are were, who were listening and having seen her brother die and then been raised to life a few days later, that she probably has some sort of insight about what's taking place. Now, she didn't know Jesus was coming back from the dead. She didn't understand that Jesus was bearing her sins, all of these things that were find, found out after the fact, but I think that this person... Mary is listening to this and she at least has some sense This something's about to happen to Jesus and I'm going to honor him here. So it was costly to her being about a year's worth of of wages for a day laborer, but she just didn't care about that. She did what she could, Jesus said, with with what information was available to her. So now we come back to what we said at the beginning. Is the point of the passage to say... um, you know be like Mary you need to be like Mary because what would you have said to Mary back then Mary you need to be like Mary you need to be like yourself here no what she she's acting with what she's seen and what she's seen is this Jesus was such an amazing fantastic person that even if she didn't understand the deity and everything going on with him being the son of God when she saw Jesus she saw the best human being who's ever lived the wisest teacher who's ever spoken the best friend she's ever known, a compassionate leader, a gentle shepherd, a powerful prophet, and at this moment, taking him at his word, she honors him by breaking this alabaster jar and breaking this small fortune over his head. Why did she love him this deeply? He hadn't even been to the cross yet. She loved him because he had loved her so well. When all of the other people, when all of the other people are saying, "You can't be here and study at Jesus' feet." Jesus says, no, she's chosen the better part. Uh, When uh, her brother Lazarus has gone into the grave, Jesus shows up and he weeps over the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were good friends with Jesus. She's experienced this love of this great person. And how much more do you think after she found out what he did on the cross for her, do you think that her love would expand? So I think what Mary would say is, don't be like me. Look to Jesus. Figure him out. Sit at his feet, learn from him, find out about his love because that's what's transformative. Not trying to be like, not trying to do what I did one time in history, but seeing Jesus who's Lord over history. And then there's a third person uh, here and this person is, uh, is Judas and uh, he, if, if Mary is Jesus no matter what, Judas is Jesus until. Now Jesus we all know is a bad guy. Right? He probably had a mustache that he would twirl in our minds, right? Um, he went down in history as one of the greatest villains of all time. Yet yeah, this is fascinating as you read through Mark's gospel. This is surprising when we read this about Judas. Because there's nothing in Mark's gospel that really has said anything negative about him. So it's shocking and out of the blue. Because Ju- Judas, to this point, as far as we know, had been very favorable to Jesus. He was there giving his approval when Peter said, You are the Christ, and said who he was. Judas was among those who drove out demons when Jesus sent them all preaching in the area. So this is shocking. But if you go through the gospels, we get a kind of a complicated picture of Judas. In John chapter 12, verse 4, which is a parallel passage to this. Uh, Judas is actually identified as the person who uh, griped about Mary. And, taking the, uh, and using the ointment over Jesus. This is what we read in John 12, 4-6. He, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So he was embezzling money from Jesus, now, he was taking money that wasn't his. Now, if we begin to think about it, we can probably put ourselves in his shoes a little bit. Jesus liked controlling the money bag, and that could be a very complicated mo- uh, uh, motivation. For instance, if people came and were asking for money, like the poor were coming, and they were giving money to the poor, who, did, who is the person doling out the money? Is Judas. He's got the money bag, so he's the one who gets to give money to the poor. And don't you think that stroked his ego a little bit? Said, so, Oh, sir, could I please have some pence? Yes, you may have two pence. You're so kind, sir. Yes, yes, I am. I mean, it would just stroke his ego for him to be able to give money to people and be known as his big philanthropist. Or maybe he just liked control, right? He liked for other people to come to him and say, no, we can't give money to that cause. Or no, we can't spend money on that. So whatever it is, Judas has some motivation under the surface involving money. So when you read back in this passage, uh, he was cooking the books, making money for himself, And the uh, Jewish leadership were offering him money to betray Jesus. They found that spot. Now, what happened in this episode with Mary? Somehow Jesus stepped on something that was hidden to everybody else. And it triggered uh, Judas in some way. Perhaps there was resentment at being called out. He was used to people praising him. But here Jesus called out what he said and said, leave her alone, she's done something that's beautiful. Maybe he's just chauvinistic, and he got called out in the middle of a group of people while this woman was praised. Maybe he didn't like that. Maybe it was this, Jesus keeps talking about dying in Jerusalem, which means, which would mean, if Jesus died, then this whole Jesus movement thing is over. It's over. And that means that I will not be the treasurer of this coming kingdom of Jesus on the earth. What I've been waiting for is not going to happen. So the easiest way for me to get something out of this is to salvage this by going to the priests and seeing what they might offer me to turn over Jesus. What do you think it was? I don't know. But something triggered him. And so for Judas, there's this third response, Jesus until. There's Jesus until he challenges me. There's Jesus until he makes me feel bad about me in some way, asks me something or points out something about me. Um, Jesus has triggered that. Now, I think it would be proper in a lot of sermons to say, which one of those are you? And all of you are kind of thinking, I'm a scribe, I'm a scribe, I'm I'm a priest, that's who I am. Uh, Most of us in here are not going to say, I'm Mary. And some of us would probably say, oh no, am I Judas? Um, Let me just relieve you of that for a little bit. Rebecca and I had a friend when we were in seminary, and he grew up in a, a church that put a lot of emphasis on the Antichrist. And uh, they would say, and his pastor would say this a lot. He would say, you know, the the Antichrist is in the world right now, and the Antichrist probably doesn't even know that he's the Antichrist. And my friend from seminary would say, oh, no, I could be the Antichrist, and I don't even know it, right? When you look at this, you might be thinking, oh, no, I might be Judas. I might be a Judas. And the answer is, too late. (laughs) You're already a Judas. Uh, We all are. You've already betrayed But what if, what if, I mean, the reason that Judas is uh, known to us for being this big villain, which he was, is because he never came back. But what if he'd come back? Wouldn't that have been an interesting story? For Judas to come back and say, I threw all the silver and I came back. That was stupid. I am so sorry for what I did, Jesus. Jesus. Do you think Jesus would have accepted him? Now, Peter kind of did that, right? He denied Jesus three times. Did he betray Jesus? Yes, he did. Did Jesus welcome him back? Yes, he did. How about this? It talks about the scribes and and the priests who uh, were seeking a way to kill Jesus. What about them? This is in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And this is after the resurrection of Jesus, the birth of the new church. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly Jeru- there in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that fascinating? So Judas, the story of Judas is, exists the way that it does in our mind because of what happened. He didn't come back, and that makes his story really sad. But you, you can come back. You can always come back because Jesus is that kind of savior and that kind of king. He accepts the wayward person. He accepts the prodigal. You might sin huge tomorrow, and Jesus would, t- would accept you back on Tuesday, right? Because he is that generous, and he's that good. The, you, people deny, they reject, they abandon, they oppose and then they come to their senses and trust in Jesus, and Jesus completely accepts them back. I remembered a really great story about that this week while I was thinking about Judas and the, possible, the idea of us thinking, oh, no, I might be a Judas. Uh, at some point, we are Judas. There's a great, uh, Some of you may have read the book by uh, Jack Miller and his daughter Barbara uh, called Come Back Barbara. Jack was a pastor uh, in, in our denomination, and uh, he had... He had several kids, and their daughter Barbara grew up professing the name of Jesus, and then gradually as they're going, she's getting older, she's beginning to pull away from them and pull away from Jesus, and she rejects the gospel. So there's this big altercation in a hotel room, and Barbara shouts, uh, Jack is trying to convince her that, you know, to stay with Jesus to believe, and Barbara shouted, Mom, Dad, I don't want your rules and morals. I don't want to act like a Christian anymore, and I'm not going to. At this, Rosemarie, his wife, stands up in the hotel room, and she grabs Barbara by the shoulders, and she, she cries out, Stop it! Stop it right now! You're acting crazy! Listen to me! Do you know what you're doing? And she did know what she was doing. And she left home for seven years, just gone. And what she said is her parents tried very hard to pursue her and have a relationship with her. And she tried very hard to avoid them and reject them and have nothing to do with them. And so she goes through her life and what her life was like apart from Jesus. She, uh, she said she was on this odyssey of, uh, of find, trying to find joy in every possible situation besides God. So she experimented with drugs and alcohol. She lived with a man. She married him. She left him. She lived with a drug dealer. She married him. She left him. And she said she was sick of herself, but she wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But her parents continued to reach out to her in any way that they could. And so finally she moved in with a third guy. She married him, and her parents continue to have relationships. And there was this one point where her dad was talking to her and trying to convince her. And she, he said, Barbara, I know you can't make yourself a Christian, but just pray that God would reveal himself to you. So she did. And then she moved to California. And she said the first way that God answered her prayer in California was for her to see herself as a self-centered person. And that every decision she'd ever made had been about herself without concern for anybody else. And she saw her sin. And then it made sense to her that she needed a savior. And she cried out to Jesus. And this thought came into her mind before she cried out. She said, if Jesus really died on the cross, she said this voice came in, if Jesus really died on the cross, then you are forgiven. And she said, and I prayed that he would forgive me, and he did. And I stepped into a life as a child of God. The prodigal comes home. The Judas who betrays is accepted back. And what he says is no matter what you've done, where you've been, how many times, what you've said about Jesus in your anger and frustration, Jesus accepts you back and welcomes you. This is Arthur Pink. He said, He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, My every backsliding, yet nevertheless, he fixed his heart upon me. So, what's this passage about? It's not be like Mary, it's not don't be like Judas, it's focus on Jesus. He was determined to go to a cross to save me and you and anybody who called upon him, no matter what we have done. He's the Passover lamb who died, and if we believe in him, it's like being in that house where the blood has been shed and marked the door, and the angel passes over and says, someone has already died on behalf of this person. We are safe, we are free, we are loved, we are cherished. So let's pray. Jesus, we pray. We pray for our friends. We pray for our family, some of whom are running. We pray that you would bring those words to mind, uh, that if we pray to you, you will reveal yourself to us. We pray that you would bring them to pray, that you would reveal yourself to them, and that, they w- that you would do so. For us in here who struggle because we have a, we have a past And we wonder if you're the kind of God who could forgive people like us. And you do. And you can. And you have. So those in the room who are struggling with finding peace for their past, we pray, Lord, that you would grant them peace. Uh, Not because their good works outweigh their bad works, but because Jesus' work far outweighs anything we do, good or bad, and we appeal only to him. And for those, Lord, who um, look at this passage and recognize your grace and your goodness to them. We pray that you would help us to love the, the people around us extravagantly. Um, we pray that you would help us to reach out to them, to give gifts to them, and to care for them. Bless us and make us people who have our eyes fixed upon Jesus we ask it in his name, amen. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.